listening to New Layer, a design podcast with Tanner Christensen and Jasmine Friedel. How do you design for accessibility? You follow the WCAG end scene. And that's the podcast. See ya. So this question <laughs> comes from uh, Samuel S., who is a... Uh, I think no, it's W... I said WCA. It's WACG, isn't it? No. WCA? Yes. Okay. Okay. Keep going. We'll get there. Yeah. We jumped ahead of here. That was a little preview of what's to come. <laughs> but this, this question comes from listener Samuel S., who is a product design leader uh, at a prominent company. And he asked us if we could talk about accessibility, specifically resources, toolkits, workflows, processes, anything that we can talk about that might help him and his team design with accessibility in mind, which seems like a great thing to do. Yeah. So what is accessibility? Yes. So it, great design is accessible design. And what accessible design means is basically you, you can parse that word, access able. It means that anyone or not anyone, but Ooh, access able. Cool. Yes. Accessible. Uh, anyone can not only access the designs that you are building, but they can also utilize them. And so you're enabling the access of your designs for anyone. And the reasons this can be very challenging is because a lot of us don't have the same problems that other people have. And problems is kind of not even the right word, but mm, yeah. uh, it's different levels of access. And so different levels of ability. So when we think of, we think of like differently abled um, people. And so just a, a really simple example is, you know, somebody who has a sight impairment um, or like a, a visual, not like a website, but a vision. Right. S I G H T not S I T E. Right. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And there's a lot of other, uh, areas that we have to keep in mind here. Often when we talk about accessibility design, I think what many people envision is exactly that, like vision impairment. But there's a lot of other things you have to consider. Things like people who don't have uh, fingers, how are they going to use their phone? Mm -hmm. uh, what about people with hearing impairments? And then further than that, people with a broken phone screen, and now they can't actually swipe or tap buttons because there's glass on their fingers. Like, There's all these different considerations you have to take into account when we think about accessibility. It's the same with like the quality of that hardware. Uh, some people have a very small old phone. That's a type of access you need to keep in mind. Right. And I, I think there's... Um trying to think of like what the groupings are, but there's, there's, there's different, when we think of, uh, web accessibility, we think of, we typically think of, um, people who might not have the same capabilities. And so that's, you know, that could be physical capabilities. Um, but one thing you were mentioning too, was different operating systems or different phone screens. Um, and so that's a different sort of capability. So maybe a technical capability, um, right. low Wi-Fi is another, right. Um, or, um, remote areas is another one with spotty Wi-Fi, And then I think there's another thing that, um, actually we were teaching our, our intro to product design class. And, um, one of our students, Alana had mentioned, you know, inclusivity. And so that's another type of, it's not quite accessibility, but when we think about it, it's like making sure that, um, we're designing experience for people, not just for us. And so that might be something we could touch on too, but I think we're going to sort of shift towards the other, the capabilities piece. Right. And why is that? Well, the answer is because if you can keep work with those levels of accessibility in mind, everything else actually kind of comes along with it. If you're designing, for example, for low visibility, you're going to help those uh, older screen devices. You're going to help users who maybe have uh, contrast problems with their devices and those kind of things. So again, great design is designing for accessibility. Like it's something that we should all be doing anyway, even if it's not a, something that we deliberately set out to do, it should be something that we 
incorporate into our practices. Do you have an example of something that you've designed or your team designed that failed at accessibility? Mm. Just curious. That failed. Oh my gosh. Yes. Or that like had a big discussion around it or, you know, a time where you had to advocate for it. Yeah, this is, this has happened a, a quite a lot actually where we've, we've set out to design something only to realize later on that the accessibility just didn't meet the needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd get users complaining or having issues and I've learned a lot from that. Let me see if I can come up with an immediate example. Well, the 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 thing that sticks out to me, top of mind, the most recent example was we were doing some user user testing uh, with a prototype that we'd built in Figma, and we didn't know it at the time, but uh, there was Figma doesn't actually have accessibility uh, standards implemented in their mm, prototypes, mm-hmm. and so we were doing user testing, and we didn't <laughs> just it's a roundabout way we didn't realize that one of our our participants had vision problems. Mm. And so we set out to like start the session. We did the intros, the standard thing. And when we shared the prototype, uh, this participant's response was like, I can't use this. Like it literally doesn't mm. work. I don't know what you want me to do. So that was kind of, uh, enlightening and also a little bit uh, frustrating because everyone in the group at that time was like, wait, how did you not think about this? Like, yeah, you overlooked this glaring thing before we even set up time. Uh, other examples are, I'll just kind of give a vague-ish, vague-ish one, but one I've seen numerous times is the use of icons or buttons without any text labels and without mm. attribution in the OS, whether it's on the web or uh, native platform. Like interpreters, screen readers, they need labels. They need alt text. Uh, right. They need these things defined. And if you don't have those defined on like your icon image asset, it's just, it's a button. And like, there's no interpretation of what that button's supposed to do. Right. So someone who, for example, sight impaired would be using their screen reader to actually be able to go through each element and know what they're clicking on. And if it's just a home icon, but it's not labeled as home, like it looks like a house, but it's not labeled at home, they won't have any context for what that thing is. That's right. And so we'll be blocked. Um, there was one I was thinking of, which isn't actually, we followed accessibility guidelines. So when I was working on, um, a learning platform not too long ago, feels like forever ago, um, we had some different text colors and um, they actually passed accessibility guidelines, but we were working for schools. And so what um, teachers were actually doing was they were projecting them onto screens. And while they may have um, resolved fine on their Chromebooks, which are you know pretty low end devices because schools don't have a lot of money to invest in, in um, laptops for kids and for teachers, um, when they were projected onto the big screen in the front of the classroom, they actually resolved lower. And so our text was too small and um, the contrast even got lower with those um, sort of like low end projectors. And I remember one of one of the um, mentors for the teachers was um, just got into a, a pretty big debate with one of the designers because the designer felt like it was fine because it passed the accessibility guidelines. But when we actually put this into context of how people use things, it was failing miserably. And it was a, it was a really interesting sort of dilemma over, you know, do we make the website look like a designer made it or do we make it like a little bit more contrasty, maybe even a little bit more garish to work for their use case? Um, and I think that was something we eventually modified although i can't actually remember and here i think is the the problem that many design teams in particular run up against time and money investment into evaluate whether or not their work aligns to actual usability actual accessibility standards Mm -hmm. not even standards but real life contextual situations like you described here because the the argument we often hear is 
I've got a deadline. I need to get this design out. I feel confident it works for 75% of the audience or some ambiguous number. I'm not going to spend any more time trying to validate or evaluate whether or not it will work for X number of our potential users who might have issues, right? Yeah. And I like, since I've been working in um, business software for a bit, I think a lot about, you know, like us designing tools and you, you think, well, you know, oh, most people in this, most people who work for, you know, X business organization are going to be able to use technology. But if you think of actually their ability to hire differently abled people, um, that can actually, your design can actually be a blocker if it doesn't work for someone who's, um, sight impaired or hearing impaired or, um, has, you know, any sort of, uh, impairment that might hinder them from being able to use your tools. And so I think there's, when we think, I, I always sort of go back to equity and equality. So if we, if we think about, you know, a world where anybody can get any sort of job with the right, you know, qualifications and education, uh, software shouldn't be an impairment in itself. Yeah, I, I totally agree. But at the same time, I think this is the kind of thing that I get hung up on where if you just design with like, again, an example being high contrast legibility in mind so that your text is always very apparent, like you can read it even if it's projected on a screen, the design is going to work better for those who don't have those impediments, Oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, totally. I, I, and I think it, 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 started, it starts with basics. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So just one more example that I'm thinking of here. Uh, recently, I was working on a number of what we call power tools uh, for, for users. And these are educated users who are trained on the software. They maybe spend weeks or months actually learning the software. And part of the design team on that project said, or were they were of the mindset that if, if these users are trained on the tool, we can really make these really powerful tools. So let's, let's have a very high density interface, meaning all of our buttons were very, very, very small, like against almost all standards, the buttons were like that size. Mm -hmm. And uh, we would cram them all together and all these kind of things. And my guidance to the team was, yes, you know, they'll, they'll be sitting down working in this one tool for most of the workday, they're trained on it. But larger buttons just means they can actually do their job a little bit faster. And they don't have to try to like get uh, precision on the button. And like, what can we do with key commands and keystrokes to help them mitigate some of these uh, controls not having be still like so dense in the interface and scrolling is a thing we're all used to these days. We shouldn't shy away from scrolling an interface and how can we make more focus interface and all these kind of things. And none of that had to do really anything with accessibility. It was just how do we make this easier for those who are already going to be in the tool and able to use it? Those are the kind of things I think we need to focus on as designers. So again, those basics. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of this episode, we kind of teased how if you're a designer and you want to understand accessibility, you want to build some foundational understanding of these basics, these approaches, incorporate them in your design process now so that you don't have to add additional time to do things like learn about accessibility, where should you go? Well, the number one resource is the WCAG. What does that stand for? Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, I Nailed believe. It, yes. Okay. So this is, for those who don't know, it's, uh, let's see, I think the website is, uh, well, you can just Google it, but it's like w3.org. They've got the standards listed. And this is a really great guide. I've never actually referenced it directly, but I'm mm -hmm. very familiar with a lot of the terminology. And if you haven't visited the website, I actually really would recommend you do so because they have a section called quick reference. Mm -hmm. And this is everything you need to know about accessibility design. At a high level, it's the kind of things you just need to kind of keep in the back of your head as you're designing. Uh, things like how can you uh, present content in an adaptable way, making sure that your designs are fluid and flexible, uh, distinguishable, things like how you use high contrast colors, legibility, uh, iconography, those kind of things. Um, 
as well as things like operability. So can users use their keyboard mm -hmm. to navigate your experience and use it? Things like avoiding seizures. You know, you don't want these fast animated GIFs or videos. Mm -hmm. That's going to be a problem for a lot of people. Navigatable input modularities, understandable, readable, predictable input assistance. All these kind of things are like really basic high level uh, things that all designers really need to keep in mind as they're designing, not just for accessibility, but for everyone. Yeah. And I think like, well, I do this, but I think a lot of designers mostly go to like sight impairment because that's what we think of where you're looking at screens. Um, and then there's some other things where we're like, oh, well, you know, we need to make sure that um, you can um, do screen readers and you can hear, and then you start to think about audio. Now that we're all doing a lot of video conferencing, we might think a little bit more about what it's like for um, someone who might be hearing impaired. And so think of like um, Zoom calls and Hangouts. Um, one of the neat things um, I just saw at one of our all hands recently was um, there were uh, closed captions. Is that what they're called? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so that was a really cool thing where it wasn't right, but I was like, man, for someone who like, you know, A is multitasking, that's the sort of like design it well for everybody and you'll be able to... Um, have a good experience, but you know, for somebody who is hearing impaired, that might work. But we also think of like folks who are neurodiverse too, when there's a lot of, um, interactions going on and how do we make focused experiences? Touch is another interaction that we need to think about, especially when we're looking at mobile devices. Um, and so it goes, it goes much the, the, the problems. And I say problems in the context of like with as product designers, we solve problems. Um, but the problems that we're solving for are, are much more broad than just visual. And I think, you know, uh, I could, I could see somebody saying something like, Whoa, well, if you can't, if you can't see, why would you be using a phone anyways? Um, or a, a screen, a phone with a screen anyways. And there, you know, there, people need to do things beyond the Pinterest, the Facebook, people need to do banking transactions. They need to, um, pay their rent. They, you know, every, everybody has daily tasks that are now on technology. And so making sure that, um, despite our, our abilities and our different abilities, we need to make sure that, um, experiences work for not just the 75%, but, but, um, the masses. Yeah, that's right. Even if you think that your audience doesn't entail a group like that, they probably, probably do. Does. You just don't know it. Yeah. In fact, it's, if you, if your gut response to accessibility design is, well, I don't need to worry about that. I'm designing uh, the next Instagram and only teens are going to use it. You <laughs> are probably extremely, uh, not not ignorant, but you're you're probably missing you're, a big picture. You're probably you know familiar with 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 the audience you're working for and people like yourself. I mean, that's just a it's a bias that we have. It's there's probably a, a cognitive bias word term for that one. Um, but self centered is skull sized kingdoms. Yes, that's that's right. So <laughs> it's probably the best way to describe it. It's not to be rude. It's just it is a reality, and I think over time, especially in our careers, uh, Jasmine and I, we've learned just how different even our peers think and experience things uh, that we design then like they see it differently than we do and so when we talk about accessibility design again the wcag go go reference that if you can you don't need to learn it all by heart but just get familiar with some of the terms and as you familiarize yourself with them as you design you will instinctively kind of pull out those points another thing you can do though is just talk to other people just show them your designs Ask them to, to interpret it for you. It's like very fundamental research. What were you going to say? Talk to other people not like yourself. I think one, one of the things that um, when 
we teach our class, we have, we have our students do a lot of research. And one of the things that we say is, you know, talk to non-design, non-family members. And hopefully it's within your audience because where you live is probably a lot of people like you. And so it depends on, on who your audience for. Like, I think, I think Facebook was such a great experience for both of us when you're designing for a billion people. Like for me, one of the traps I fell into is I always like naturally defaulted to designing for iOS for iPhones. And the majority of our users used Android. And it wasn't in my sort of wheelhouse. None of my friends who were all, you know, designers at the time had Android phones. And so we were all just sort of familiar with this high-end phone. And that was a a bias on my part um, because I wasn't thinking about, you know, the hundreds of millions of people in, you know, in Asia and in the the Middle East and in in Europe who are using Androids. Yeah, this happens all the time. Like, uh, where was this? I think I was... I can't remember where I was working, but I remember I w- myself and the design team, we were just designing all of our mocks in Sketch at the time using like the 1440 whatever MacBook Pro dimensions, designing like for Safari. And we were so convinced that this was just what everybody else used. And when we looked at the analytical data, we found that like less than 1% of our users were on Macs. Mm-hmm. They were all on <laughs> Windows machines using yeah. like a Chrome browser or even yeah. like Internet Explorer at the time. And like the majority of our designs looked nothing like what we were mocking up because... The, the web browser didn't support this layout and didn't support right. these fonts, these typefaces and things. So like it happens way more than you probably realize. Yeah. So we were talking about the WACG, the other resources that I, I always think of when um, I'm looking for best in classes, uh, just Apple's human interface guidelines um, and material guidelines for um, from Google. I, when you look at, you know, why, why did these two, you know, master, masters of, of operating systems, um, pull together these basics and it's because they're, they're foundational, they're tested, they're tried and they're true. And if you're following those patterns and it's not just visual patterns, it's not just contrast, it's how things interact as well. Um, this gets into the idea of patterns. If you establish strong patterns from the beginning for both usability and, um, visibility, you'll be able to use a toolkit that people are familiar with and that's um, sort of proven. And so when I when I think about that, that brings me to this idea of design systems. And, you know, part of the reason we can do design systems is, you know, for speed and for quality. Um, and that is, you know, if we build, if we design and build reusable components and reusable parts, then we can make sure that our our system is the products that we build are high quality and it takes engineers less time to build them because they're not building things over and over again. Uh, But it's also an opportunity to make sure that everything that we're using ends up being um, accessible. And when I was leading the design team at Udacity, Jenny Yip, who's now at Atlassian um, and uh, her teammate Casey, they had done an incredible job of building out not only just a system, but an accessible system. And so if you can kind of nip it in the bud, um, oh, and by the way, that's on, that's online still. I think that neither of them are still there, but it's, um, it's called Veritas at Udacity. And you can Google that if you want an example of a great design system. Um, but yeah, if you can, if you can sort of nip that in the bud and build something foundational that's accessible, you sort of don't have to worry about it. But if you're at a company and, and it hasn't been done, it's a lot of work to clean that back up and to make system-wide changes to make sure that you have your your guidelines um, being implemented. Yeah, it's the kind of thing 
that you can also influence in small ways, right? So I mentioned earlier, um, making sure that the elements in your design, whether they're a native platform like iOS or uh, an Android phone or the, on the web, make sure you have alt tags or title tags defined on all your elements. Like it's not that hard. And a designer can very easily just investigate and you know, um, inspect each element in the UI and tell the engineers, hey, this needs an alt tag and here's what the text should be and move on, right? Like it's not that much work. There's also some a few tricks that I personally use in my own design process that really do not take too much time and I believe always help improve my designs. So things like use the accessibility settings on your device. Whether you're designing for iPhone, you can enable like voiceover or high contrast, uh, low, slow animations, larger text, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. On my Mac, whenever I'm designing, <laughs> I always, always go into the system preferences and turn on black and white uh, for my entire screen. So this is an accessibility setting on Macs. And it makes just the entire screen black and white. And it's, it's such a simple way to, just, to check the contrast the balance and the legibility of your elements on your screen. You'll be kind of wildly surprised at what you identify. For example, I've been designing uh, token badges lately, things like little badges that indicate an error state or a success state. And when they're colorized, they look really great. They, they meet accessibility reading guidelines. They, they feel good. But then when it, I turn them into black and white, some of the text just disappears. And it's, it's like, holy cow, this is, this is wild. And yet it can really... Uh, exemplify where you may be falling short and where you can investigate a little bit more of your time. So again, like black and white setting. There's also a really great app. We're talking about legibility here a lot, but uh, I think it is worth noting. There's a great app called Contrast at usecontrast.com. I think it's a, a paid app, but it's really worth it. And what this app will do is it'll, it'll tell you what the WCAG rating is for text over colors. It'll give you a number mm-hmm. and a percent and say, here's like how legible we think this is. It's a really great tool. Yeah. And I mean, if you, we talked about sight impairments and there's all kinds of sight impairments, like um, color blindness is something that, you know, most of us sort of know this is like, if, if we're not colorblind, um, like red and green um, are, uh, what is it? Red and green aren't, aren't able to be seen. It's like, that's, that's why the Facebook logo is blue is Mark is colorblind. Um, and so he picked a color that he could see. Uh, but there's also tons of different kinds of colorblindness. And so um, your color pattern might resolve differently. Um, and contrast might be incredibly different based on what type of colorblindness. And uh, that's a, a pretty large portion. I don't know what the percentage of is in the United States or the world, but a, a lot of people are colorblind. Yeah. Um, I had another thought. Shoot. Oh, no, wait, hold on. Maybe we should keep going. It'll come to me. Yeah, if it comes back to you, you go ahead and write. But on, on that colorblind oneness, I'm actually, I just pulled up my Mac's uh, accessibility settings under display. There's color filters. And you can actually uh, use these filters to see which kind of uh, visual impediments might, like how they will influence your, your, mm-hmm. your work. So the filters are red, green filter, green or red filter, blue, yellow filter, and then of course, grayscale for the contrast is what I use. But you can also turn on things like spoken content. You can enable descriptions for a lot of your content. You've got a zoom magnification setting. A lot of users do use these things, even if you don't think they might be, they are using them and it doesn't hurt you to go in there, poke around, see what your design looks like in these different elements. If anything, it's gonna make your design stronger again because you'll have that fluidity, that flexibility in mind as you're designing and that's just gonna make the design stronger no matter what. Whether we're talking about visual uh, things like uh, contrast or we're talking about um, what elements show up. If an element doesn't load, if you're building a web app for example, if you have that alt text, that alt text will appear still. Yeah, and um, so alt text is basically written text that supports something that's not written. 
Um, I think both Twitter and Instagram now allow for alt text. And I think it's really like, I did say earlier, you know, people who have impairments need to go about their daily lives and do tasks, but they also need to enjoy their lives too. And so when you think about like taking the time when you're posting on Instagram to actually write what the image is, you know, somebody smiling, looking happy, holding a pink balloon or whatever that is, um, that's something that, you know, we're doing for inclusivity. Um, it's accessibility, but it's also inclusivity. And so I think that's really important. Um, I, I, I remember what I I wanted to say. Um, I wanted to like discuss where does this come up in your process and who's responsible for it? Yeah. Crickets. No, I'm just kidding. It's, I'm pausing because I don't think there's an answer. There are many different answers depending on where you're working, the size of the team, the type of work you do. Um, well, what about, you know, our friend Samuel asked this question. And so he's saying, you know, he leads the team and wants to understand or get more insight on how to help his team. What have we done in the past? Yeah. So again, it depends, but a, a, <laughs> few, th- a few things that have worked really well in my mind, one of the best things, it was at Facebook when the company was much smaller, but they had an entire, not a team, but like a group of people dedicated to accessibility and keeping that conversation going, having people do workshops, uh, almost like as a fun activity. We had it, what was it called? The, it was like an ac- accessibility like booth or section where they had... Oh, the empathy lab. The empathy yeah, lab. Yeah, that so was cool. Was just, it was just a little like uh, desk, not a little desk, but a, a sizable desk sitting in the middle of the office. And on that desk, it had varying devices that people with accessibility needs uh, had. And so things like screen readers were on there. There mm-hmm. were things like uh, special types of mouse or cursors where you could use like a ball instead of a keyboard to type words and like uh, audio projections, like different types of computers and things just so you could get, again, build your empathy and try to understand yep. a little bit about how these people work. So that's one thing I've seen work well is try to build empathy as part of the culture, as a part of the conversation. It doesn't need to be formalized as part of your process, but it does need to be something that you're often talking about, referring to, uh, and making it kind of almost like a fun activity of sorts. That sounds terrible, but hopefully you know what I mean. <laughs> An empathy-based activity. One other thing, um, some companies give you phones or equipment Um, one thing that I found really helpful and this is, you know, this is a luxury, but at Facebook, when I got a a phone, I'd I'd often get an Android. Um, so I'd have, I'd, I'd be able to test my designs instead of like having to borrow a device or maybe just like making sure that your team has all those devices and can make sure that there, there's some sort of like, uh, protocol that you're running, um, before you launch things. Um, it's, it's always really helpful to have advocates for this, like people who just definitely care deeply about this on your team, whether it's a design systems person or not on the design side and on the engineering side. Um, accessibility is, is, is designed, prioritized, prioritized design and built by product and, and design people. And so making sure that you have folks who can not only design things that are accessible, but also prioritize and build them is really important. Um, one thing we did at Udacity uh, with our design systems folks was I made sure that in every critique, I had a design systems person because they were our accessibility advocates. And so we would do, um, I, I feel like I've really polished my critiques over time. And so we would do a round robin where everyone would write down um feedback and it's not just accessibility feedback but we'd go around the room and everyone would say one thing 
um, until we sort of ran out of time. And so that, that taught my team to prioritize what feedback they were giving to the most important feedback and kept it from being redundant. Um, but when we got to our design systems folks, it was their, it was really their job to make sure that any accessibility um, concerns were addressed. And so that did one thing is it, it created advocates on our team. I mean, they were already amazing advocates anyways, but it also taught the team about the difference between what a text link should be and a button should be, for example. And so making sure that you make space in your critique for, um, the accessibility pieces will, will help, um, scale the, uh, I think the impact of accessibility advocates. Yeah. Definitely agree there, and I've seen that in a few other places as well. Even when we don't have a design systems team, just certain individuals on the team who are extremely passionate a bit about accessibility, and like they kind of view it as their job to to raise those flags as they come up. Or you know, just saying you know the the questions we sort of have a critique set up, which is like, what are you showing today? What's the context? Uh, show your work, and then you know, what are you looking for feedback on? And then maybe after that, it's uh, there's a question that's like what are the accessibility things we should be addressing? And so you could easily add that to a framework of a critique too that just um, sort of heightens it in the priority list of what you're discussing as a group. Yeah, this is what I was just about to get into. Uh, just to give a few more quick examples here, uh, things, when we talk about accessibility design, we're talking about things like very explicit hover states for input fields, something that many people overlook or don't think it's necessary. And yet when a user is using their keyboard to navigate the experience, they need to know where that keyboard focus is. A focus state can help there. Mm. Things like using icons with labels, uh, not just labels or icons, but combining the two. Uh, not something that my team, I'm, I'm helping them with right now, is uh relying on tooltips to help users navigate an experience. My personal mantra on this is if you have to use a tooltip, you're probably doing something wrong on the front end. Tooltips should always be supplementary and not mm -hmm. necessary. Mm -hmm. So these are the kind of things you need to keep in mind. And in my, in my kind of world, what I've done is you can create a checklist of very basic accessibility requirements. I mentioned the black and white thing I do earlier. Mm -hmm. That's just, it's literally just on a sticky note next to my desk of like five, six, seven, anywhere up to like 12 things that I want to make sure I'm checking as the product designer before I show the work to anyone. And this, these are like, basic yeah. And this is like things. before we're going into build, this is like mid design phase. Right. Where like if you do this work up front, then it, it, it doesn't even become any additional work or uh, any additional, like it doesn't require any energy from anyone else. It's already done. It's already solved. Let's get it built. Yep. And it's the kind of thing that you really do need to kind of build up over time and with experience. Again, going to look at all the guidelines we've mentioned here, looking at best practices. And once you start to understand those things, you'll always have it. You don't need to even use that checklist after a while. Yeah. I mean, you can even like, especially if you're a manager, you can even think of this as like a skill, a skill that your team has to build. And so if that's a requirement for or a competency that you require when you go through your review period or how you hire like ask questions about it like make sure it's part of the day-to-day -day. and so that can be something i mean without going to the website without having experience with this before um i imagine there are people who just don't know a lot about it and so you can you can build that knowledge base you can build that practice um by learning and investing Right. And I can't emphasize this enough. I've said it a few times and I'm going to keep saying it. It Once you know those foundations, once you have some understanding of what this world entails, you, it's really not that much more work. It's really actually not more work in my mind. It's just the work. Uh, mm, once I you like start, that. yeah. Once you start designing with these things in mind, 
that's just how you design. You don't need to think about it anymore. There's no such thing as accessibility design. All design should be accessible. So that's, that's I think, an end state where you want to get to. To get to that point, it will take a little bit of poking around, maybe against establishing an individual or a volunteer group in your team who can prioritize accessibility and always just kind of raise those flags, ask those questions. It doesn't need to be more complex than that. You can also have, like I said, build out a checklist of accessibility requirements or things that your team knows that you want to investigate in. And if you have like a fairly large team, maybe you can break up all the accessibility things that you, your team wants to accomplish. And so when you have critique, basically everyone just goes through their checklist and says, does it meet this? Does it do this? Has it uh, explored this? And like as a team, you can become responsible for that. Mm-hmm. So those are the few things you can do. There's another thing here, which is uh, prioritization. So I'll give you a little bit of an interesting example here. Right now where I'm at, our, our product is not uh, responsive at all. It's built for the web. And it's not responsive in any kind of way. So this Tanner, is, what does responsive mean? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, responsive design basically means that the the product or the web page in this in this case uh, responds to this the the window dimensions on the screen. So as you scale up or down the window, make it larger or smaller, the website or the web page within that that view that window shrinks or grows uh, to show more content, show less content to be really flexible around that experience. And so that works for screens, but it also works when you're looking up websites on your phone. Correct, yes. So a website obviously looks very different on your phone than a laptop because the screen is much smaller, you don't have touch interactions, all those kind of fun things. And so the product I'm working on right now with my team, it's not responsive, meaning we've designed it for the desktop, actually a certain size of a desktop, and anything other than that desktop size looks a little bit broken. (laughs) If you try to load the website on your mobile phone, it actually won't let you. We flag it and say, you need to go to your desktop. Now, this is probably fine for a startup that's just getting off the ground, but we know it's really important to get responsiveness built into the product because a lot of our users aren't using the same computers we're using. They mm-hmm. don't have these large tech-sized uh, monitors. A lot of them may be on the go running to their car to, to do something and their boss emails them or calls them and says, hey, can you quickly check on this thing on the website? What do we expect them to do? Like run back to their house and log on? No, they need to be able to use their phone. So these are the kind of use cases that we know we need to solve for but we're not yet. And the reason for that is because we have not prioritized it. And we haven't prioritized it because as Jasmine mentioned a while ago, it's a lot of work to redesign the system to be responsive. But it is something that we we are passionate about. And what we're going to do is slowly, incrementally, first and foremost, have a conversation around why this matters, and then demonstrate how we can make small changes to slowly get to a responsive experience over time. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of designers... Um I think this is just like a business versus design case where a lot of designers go, oh, we need to do this now. This is the most important thing. And for companies who have, you know, problems, accessibility problems to solve, um, you know, there's there's different phases of your business and startups often just need to sort of keep the lights on. And when you've, you know, maybe haven't hired design and you've just had engineers building for a little bit, you know, a lot of companies start with sort of a product person and a first engineer and, and maybe the designer comes later. Um, there you end up with some debt and there's always, always trade-offs and it's, it's such a hard trade-off, especially as you know, if you're the advocate and you're the person who's bringing that empathy for users to the table and you want to bring that accessibility and inclusivity and you know, the, the priority conversation is a tough one. Um, and the, business case for accessibility is typically 
uh, I would say a long-term one. Um, and so it's really hard when you are needing, um, near-term, uh, revenue and, you know, it's like, Hey, are we going to spend, you know, a quarter working on redesigning our site and that brings us no revenue? Or are we going to build new features that actually might get us new customers? And so this is something that, um, is often hard. It's just like a brand work or, you know, refreshing something. It's like, what's, what's the trade-off? And this is one of those things that's, it's often hard to, um, have like a monetization plan for. And I think that's a push and pull between this work and why you often see like, Oh, it's, we're not going to do the overhaul. We're going to invest in this. We're going to fix one thing at a time. And that makes sense to me. Yep. Absolutely. I completely agree with what you said. And I've certainly seen it. And I've even been in on that side where you're a designer you see a problem, you want it to get fixed. You think it's the most important thing right now. You know, certain users can't view our website. That's insane. Well, maybe, but what I would say to those designers and what, what I kind of wish someone had told me um, is that these things can happen. You can still make accessibility a big priority for your team, for your company. You can make these changes, make these improvements. We all know you kind of need to. Uh, the way that you will do it is not going to be overnight. And I, what I actually personally would recommend is that no business uh, sets out to say, like, we're going to solve this in a week. Let's Let's double down on this. It's important and you need to invest in it. But at what cost? I'm not sure. So the way that I always tell people uh, to tackle this is start small. Start with the smallest elements you can. Like I said, do you have alt tags? That's a huge improvement. Well, step zero is like, don't F it up. Like, (laughs) don't make it worse. Like, don't be the designer who's like, oh, I think it looks better this way. Right. Yeah. So first of all, like educate yourself, become aware of what these needs might be. Take them very seriously. Like we said earlier, talk to people who are not like you, who are not uh, in your same kind of group, social group or uh, design group uh, and, and focus on the small things. And through those small things, you can start to set an example for the rest of the team about what kind of questions they can ask and what kind of work they need to be doing. You also want to show, don't tell. So don't just tell people that accessibility is important. Show them examples of why it's important. There's mm-hmm. so many examples of this out in the world, especially when we talk about product design. All you have to do is Google like accessibility design and you'll find hundreds of great examples of companies doing really meaningful work Again, at small scale, uh, but it has really impact. And then the last thing I'd say is, um, well, actually two, two last things. One is find the allies and the partners in your team and outside of your company that can help you and your team focus on accessibility. This can be a volunteer group, like we mentioned. It can be just a group of people who are curious or want to learn more together. Uh, find ways to like keep that conversation going. And then the last thing that I'll say here is just be patient. You will get there as long as you're like focused on it. You keep raising that flag. Don't try to like stop anyone's process for designing accessibility, but uh, make sure to include it in your process. Yeah. There's one other thing that came to mind. Um, this is just an example, but I wanted I wanted to um, mention her because she's done such phenomenal work. But um, Liz Jackson was somebody, uh, she's, um, uh, let's see, I can't remember her exact story, but she... I think she woke up one day and she was like partially paralyzed. And so she uses a cane. Um, and she, she was on Twitter the other day and she, she bikes. Um, and so she uses city bikes in New York. And so there was an experience with Lyft where the experience was actually timed. And because of her, um, disability, she needed to walk somewhere and couldn't make it within the time limit. And so she, she had to tweet about that. Um, she shouldn't have to tweet about that. Like we should, we should be understanding experiences and, and saying it's, it's not 
I mean, what's the worst that can happen is, oh, it's always a great question because you have to say like, how could this go ethically or physically wrong? Um, and I think this sort of gets into the ruined by design, uh, sort of space, but you know, how, how do we start to think of, you know, who are the people that this breaks for? And when you're talking about, you know, not all of our transactions or experiences are business transactions that are on your phone. Some of them start in real life and go through a device and then end in, in real life. You, your device can be considered real life too. Um, but I, I think we just like, and, and even I, like, as we're talking about this, just to admit it, like I'm really struggling to think of use cases, um, because I am, you know, I am able-bodied and I don't experience any of these personally. And so it's not, it's, I'm trying to develop empathy, but I, I don't quite like have the grasp of all of the things that could happen. And so that seems to be me to be our responsibility is, is diving into the, diving into all the cases and trying to not just accommodate them all, but design foundations that work for everybody. And it does go so much um, beyond visual decisions into interaction decisions into business decisions. Um, so yeah, I just kind of wanted to throw another example out there. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I'll recommend, this is a talk that Jasmine and I saw in real life, uh, Liz Jackson's 99U talk called mm -hmm. Designing for Inclusivity. Mm -hmm. Really, really great talk. Highly recommend it. Uh, we all are at time. We could probably talk about this for 16 more hours, but uh, I think we'll end it there. We should just do like a 24-hour live stream of us just like talking about design. No, let's not do that. Have to feed the dogs. Oh, yeah. Mm. Get lunch. Yeah. Well, maybe next time. Take a nap. Okay. All right. Well, hopefully uh, you all found that very helpful. And thank you again for asking the questions via email. Uh, keep them coming and we'll, we'll keep the episodes coming. Yep. All right. See ya. Peace.